Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And today we bring you the history of NBA salaries. Now, at the end of the previous episode, I said that we would do a profile on Bill Sharman, but we have pushed that episode until next week. So again, today we are talking about NBA salaries. Really, the subject for today rolls into the larger topic of how the NBA makes money. Over time, the NBA has increased its number of revenue streams. As the NBA has increased the amount of money it makes, the players have seen their own salaries increase by a corresponding amount. Now, it is no secret that today the NBA is the richest basketball league in the entire world. It offers the highest salaries to its players, and that is why the NBA attracts the best players from around the world. In our story today, we will go all the way back to the beginning of the league to see how salaries have changed over the years and what led to those changes. So, let's go back to the first season of the NBA when it was called the BAA, the Basketball Association of America. In the fall of 1946, as the league was preparing to kick off its inaugural season, the owner set a salary cap of $40,000 US for each of the 11 teams that were going to play. Each owner had to fill his entire squad using only $40,000. For that first season, most teams kept only eight or nine players on the team. At the time, the typical team did not need much more than eight or nine players. There were five players on the court, and that still left the team with three or four players as substitutes. Even today, many coaches in the NBA rarely play more than nine players in any given game. So with a salary cap of $40,000, that meant that each player received, on average, between $4,500 and $5,000 for that first season. Of course, a star player made a bit more and a bench player made a bit less, but basically that was the average for each NBA player. With 11 teams in the league, this meant that the salary cap for the entire league for that first season was $440,000. Today, Steph Curry makes more than that in one game by himself. Now let me rephrase that. Steph Curry for the current 2021-2022 season made $558,000 per game. Back in the first season, the entire league only made $440,000. Of course, I am not accounting for inflation. That does make a big difference. If you do account for inflation, the amount of money that the NBA players made for that first season is the equivalent of $74,000 in 2022. That means that the entire group of 85 NBA players would collectively make $6.3 million for the whole season in today's terms. That is how much salaries have changed. Even accounting for inflation, the amount of money that current NBA players make is around 800 times what their counterparts made for that first season. Now, I have said this on previous episodes, that is because the league was a much different place back in the beginning. 
Back in 1946, when the NBA got started, the primary source of income was ticket sales. The fans would pay his or her money to have a seat at an NBA game, and the two teams divided up the ticket sales with 75% of the gate receipts going to the home team and 25% going to the visiting team. In fact, that is still how they do it today in the NBA. TV did not exist back then like it does today. I mean, the technology of television existed, but virtually nobody had a TV in their home unless your family was named Rockefeller or Getty. At the time, teams could make a little bit more money through ads and sponsorships. Local small businesses might advertise in the arena like a local car dealership or a local clothing store, and this brought in a little bit of money. After all, the typical NBA arena back then had only around 5,000 to 7,000 seats. Except for the Boston Garden and Madison Square Garden, most NBA arenas were really small. So it was not that expensive to advertise in an arena because they were really not that many people to advertise to. The early NBA was really small potatoes compared to today, and I am sure that you are getting that by now. That is why some of the top college players would skip the NBA completely and go get a corporate job using their college degree. Most office jobs paid more than what the NBA paid. The NBA was not the place to go to get rich back when the league started. However, just a few years later in 1950, the team's salary cap had doubled to $80,000, and most teams were carrying 10 players in the roster for an average of $8,000 per player, but it was still not like the money today. So most players had to get a job in the offseason, like selling real estate or being a sales rep. In the case of George Mikan, he was an in-house corporate lawyer for the company that sponsored the team, since he had a law degree when he began his NBA career. By 1957, the players had formed a union called the National Basketball Players Association, or NBPA. That is the union that would represent the players in negotiations with the owners. However, the owners did not formally recognize the union and would only negotiate with players individually. If the player was not willing to negotiate individually, then he was simply out of the league. Players decided to just negotiate rather than lose their jobs. So while the players' union existed, it was not very effective. By 1960, the team's salary cap was raised even further to $150,000 per team, or $15,000 per player on average. By 1960, players no longer needed off-season jobs unless they just wanted to work, and many did. Some teams were signing local TV contracts and were able to begin earning a second significant revenue stream. However, certain players would work in their future careers in the off-season in order to make an easier transition to their second career but the players' union was still not recognized until 1964. Now, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with how the players' union was recognized. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! 
soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the history of NBA salaries. Now we left off in 1964 and that was when the Players Union was fully recognized. I tell the full story back in episode 85, but here's the short of it. The NBA All-Star Game in 1964 was going to be on national television for the very first time and this was going to be great exposure for the league. The All-Star players like Bill Russell, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Bob Pettit, and Union President Tom Heinsohn told the owners just minutes before the game that they would not play until the owner signed an already prepared legal document recognizing the players union for all future negotiations. With the country waiting to see this game on national television, the owners gave in and signed the document and the game tipped off. Again, that is episode 85 if you want to go check that out. With the union now recognized, the players were able to negotiate for medical benefits as well as a pension fund, two things that they did not have until 1964. But then, in 1967, something happened that made the salaries jump to levels never before seen. The ABA. This new league was hungry to take on the NBA, and the best way for them to do that was to steal players away from the NBA. They began offering players unheard of contracts, like $1 million for 10 years and such. By 1970, the NBA team salary cap was $350,000, and that meant $35,000 per player on average. National TV contracts were now involved creating extra revenue for all teams. Also, the 1970s saw the beginning of significant merchandise sales. Now, I do not know why it took so long for sports leagues to figure out that fans would wear t-shirts, jerseys, and hats of their favorite team, but of course, I was not there at the time, so I should not criticize too harshly. As 1980 rolled around, the team's salary cap was now $2 million, and teams were now carrying 12 players on the squad. That calculates to an average of $167,000 per season per player. At this point, the superstars of the league were now living in mansions, wearing the most expensive clothes and driving the most expensive cars. Nobody in the league was working in the offseason anymore. They were all full-time basketball players. As the league got into the 80s, a few things happened that made the salaries jump across the league. The first two were Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. They made basketball fun to watch again because ratings had been suffering just prior to their rookie year. But now, basketball was back. It was fun. Ticket sales were up. Ad revenue was up. Merchandising was going through the roof. And the TV contracts were becoming more and more lucrative. Then, in 1984, Michael Jordan joined the league and gained true pop culture celebrity status. By the 1990, the team's salary cap was now $9.8 million per team and an average salary of $753,000 per player per season. Even bench players were living in luxury. The money was at a point where if the players saved and invested their salary wisely, they would not have to work another day in their lives once they retired from basketball. Now, back in the 1960s and 1970s, even the superstars had to think about their second career once basketball was over but not by 1990. Most players still squandered most of their NBA earnings, and that is a topic for another day, but my point is this. If the player invested wisely, their NBA money should last them the rest of their lives. As the Bulls and Michael Jordan dominated the 1990s, the TV revenue went higher and higher. The NBA put the Bulls on nationally televised games as often as they could. Another thing happened during the 1990s that really helped with salaries. 
It was the 1992 Dream Team at the Barcelona Olympics. The entire world got to see what basketball looked like when it was played by the best players in the world, and that created a huge appetite for NBA basketball games around the world. European countries where basketball is very popular wanted to see NBA games, and that meant even more TV money for the league because now an entire new continent of fans were clamoring for games and merchandise. By the year 2000, the team's salary cap was $34 million, with the average player making $2.4 million per season. Now landing a contract to play in the NBA was like winning the lottery. If the player was even just half decent at handling money, they should earn enough to never have to work again beyond basketball. Pretty much every player lived in a mansion, even the ones that hardly ever saw the court. But in 2002, another specific event happened that radically increased NBA income. It was the arrival of Yao Ming. The year that he was drafted by the Houston Rockets, the NBA began to broadcast games in China, a country of over 1 billion people now desperately wanted to watch NBA basketball, particularly the Houston Rockets. That is a ton more revenue for the league. One player opened up one of the largest markets in the world and they had money to spend. By 2010, the team's salary cap was now $58 million, with the average salary at $3.8 million per player. The NBA decided that it was time to start streaming their games over the internet. Now, anyone in the world can pay the NBA directly to watch their games on their computer or device. Today, nearly a full third of the NBA, or 150 players, come from outside the United States. That creates interest in every one of those countries. Lithuania wants to watch the NBA to root on their hero, Luka Doncic. Cameroon wants to see their own countrymen, Joel Embiid and Pascal Siakam, play in the All-Star game. The players in the NBA represent roughly 60 different nations from around the world and that creates interest everywhere. The NBA is now a legitimate global brand. The best basketball anywhere happens in the NBA. That leads us to the year 2020, where the team salary cap is $109 million per season, and the average salary is now $6.4 million per player. The current television contract for the NBA pays the league around $2.5 billion per year. That is just for the American rights to show the game. The NBA is now shown in over 200 countries where even more money is made. The merchandising is kind of out of control. I can go to NBA.com and buy a garden gnome or even underwear with the logo of my favorite team. And I have to admit that I have three different Lakers Christmas ornaments that I put on my tree every single year. So how are the actual salaries determined? Well, every few years, the NBA owners negotiate with the players on something called a collective bargaining agreement, or CBA. The CBA establishes the basics that apply to all players in the league. It covers how they travel, the level of hotel the players will stay when they're on the road, how much they get per day to buy meals while on the road, the medical benefits, etc. As part of the CBA, it is agreed that the players will receive roughly 50% of all revenue, while the owners keep the other 50%. That is how the salary cap is determined every summer. They look at the total revenue from the previous season, and then roughly half of that number will go to the new salary cap. They define total revenue as a sum of all national and international TV earnings, all merchandise sales, ticket sales, streaming revenue, national sponsorship deals, and a portion of the revenue from the jersey patch that the teams wear now. All of that money goes into a huge pot and the players get around half of it.
The pot is approximately $9 billion per year as of 2021. Now, you might be thinking that the other 50% that the owners receive is a very nice income, but in truth, owners keep very little, if any, of their portion of the revenue. From their share of the revenue, they have to pay the salaries of all the coaches, the trainers, the doctors, the front office staff, the janitors, etc. That could be as many as 100 people outside of the actual players. They also have to pay for the maintenance of the practice facility. They have to pay for rent on the arena if they don't already own it and they have to pay for all the food that the players get to eat the owners pay for all of it they also pay for chartering a private plane to fly the team around all season long the owners also pay for the players to stay in the most expensive hotels in every city they travel to often needing to secure as many as 35 rooms per night for a simple road trip the owners also give the players a hundred dollars per day to eat while they're on the road you can imagine that these expenses add up very quickly, and by the time the owners are finished paying for all of this, there is very little money left for them. But that's okay. No one needs to feel sorry for the owners. Almost every one of them is a billionaire, and he or she makes their money in businesses outside of the NBA. For example, the owners of the Orlando Magic also own Amway. The owner of the Dallas Mavericks is tech billionaire Mark Cuban. The owner of the LA Clippers is former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer. The owner of the Charlotte Hornets is Michael Jordan. The owner of the Knicks is media mogul James Dolan. The owner of the Lakers is the Bus family who originally made their fortune in real estate. The point is, the owners are just fine, even though they keep virtually no money from their teams. I can only imagine where the salaries will go in the next 10 to 20 years. I was just having a conversation with my producer Jacob about the possibility of the first player to make $82 million or more per year. That would come out to $1 million per game. Imagine being so good at basketball that someone is willing to pay you $1 million per game to play for their team. I remember seeing an old newspaper clip. The photo attached to the article was from 1971, and it featured Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson from the Milwaukee Bucks playing against Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and Will Chamberlain from the Lakers. The writer was beside himself as he could not believe that these five players made $1 million per year collectively. At $200,000 each, he asked, quote, are basketball players worth that much? Unquote. I think he would have had a heart attack if he saw today's salaries. Well, there you have it. That is the history of NBA salaries and how they grew to the enormous amounts that they are today. I think that any player currently in the league should thank the players from previous generations for helping build the league to what it is today. It's because of those players in the 1940s and 1950s that worked summer jobs that players today can make what they do. So join us next week when we share the story of Bill Sharman. He is in the Hall of Fame, and he is the guy who invented the morning shoot-around. And I promise, we will share that profile next week. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, 
and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.